Hello, and thank you for joining us on The Business Advantage. I am Alicia M. Pennington, your host and owner of Advantage Athletic Training. Everything we've discussed about this season has led up to the larger discussion of how do we advance ourselves in the profession, and particularly, how do we do that in non-traditional ways? There are many resources available for the traditional athletic trainer and traditional settings, and everything we discussed this season is applicable. But the real work needs to be done in how we grow the profession, which includes emerging settings and non-traditional models of practicing athletic training. Key learning objectives. Recognize the value of non-traditional settings to the roots and overall growth of the athletic training profession. Know where to locate sources of inspiration and resource for being able to emerge into a non-traditional setting of athletic training. Identify necessary risk management procedures for assisting the athletic trainer who wishes to develop their profession in a non-traditional setting. Understanding the difference between traditional and non-traditional settings in our profession is typically defined by the place that someone practices. For example, the work that an athletic trainer does in the college setting is likely very similar to the work done in a rodeo setting, but one is considered traditional and the other is not. But there are also non-traditional ways to practice in traditional settings, which is much of what we have encouraged you, the listeners, to think about during this season. Even though you may work in a setting that is common, you may practice in a way that is not. Whether it's your employment model or how you present yourself, being non-traditional does not mean you have to venture off into space unknown. We've seen language at the NATA level change over the past several years to no longer necessarily consider certain markets as emerging since some of them, such as clinical, have been long-standing and are no longer emerging. Instead, we see a shift towards giving each division its own authority and stance instead of attempting to clump together many markets that may or may not belong together. For example, it used to be that occupational or industrial settings were lumped together with performing arts. They are now seen and respected as individual verticals in the opportunity they can provide to the profession instead of simply just emerging practices. CPAT used to be the Committee on Emerging Practices in Athletic Training, which changed its name to COPA, the Committee on Practice Advancement, which is far more encompassing and probably a better reflection of the work the committee is accomplishing. I want to destigmatize the idea or label of emerging settings because the word emerging infers that something isn't already established, which may be true in that ATs aren't present, but that does not mean there isn't guidelines or boundaries to work within that can provide structure and support to the athletic trainer. It seems that in how NATA distinguishes job settings from emerging settings on their website, it's as if working in emerging setting isn't a job setting, and that simply isn't true. You have the power to create work for yourself wherever you want it to be. So don't allow labels or preconceived notions to limit your desire to pursue what you may be passionate about. NATA says COPA's mission is to, quote, advance the athletic training profession in business and employment opportunities, compensation, and brand recognition of athletic trainers as healthcare professionals, which is exactly what we have aimed to accomplish over these past 10 episodes. I'd like to believe that if you're listening to this, 
then you have a vested interest in the advancement of the profession and your interests likely lie with business opportunities. I know that is the space that we operate from, and I am optimistic that NATA's focus on this area will bring greater potential. NATA has emphasized emerging settings because, in my opinion, I think they see the future of athletic training going in these directions. And I've got to say, it's at least partially the result of the work all of us have done. I'm not entirely informed about how new work groups or committees come to be, but it seems that ATs were the ones creating possibilities for themselves in these areas, and as that interest grew, NATA started to pay attention to create representation for us. This is the difference between looking to our governing body to create something for us versus them representing the ones we find for ourselves. We don't need to wait on someone else to tell you it's okay or give you permission in order to develop an area that you see an opening in. As the old adage says, if you build it, they will come. Now, while I don't think we will ever get out of our grassroots placements, nor do I think we should, I also think it's necessary to explore other prospects if we want to grow our profession. This is both for business and professional reasons. I think there is a greater likelihood of retention deeper into careers if we can find more varied settings for our practitioners and we can excite younger generations with the myriad of environments by permeating new spaces. And, moreover, being that we are still such a young profession, there is lots of potential to be had. If we increase the number of revenue streams by opening new markets to ourselves, we also have a greater chance of increasing salaries. I believe I've said it before, but we are in a really unique time in this profession. We have enough groundwork laid that we can represent ourselves well, but still haven't fully penetrated all of the markets available so great opportunity still lies ahead. If you listen to episode number one from this season, Fulfillment, you heard me talk about Simon Sinek's Start With Why. Well, part of his lecture touches on the law of diffusion of innovation, which is essentially a bell curve showing how people accept new innovations. Let's consider the profession of athletic training as the innovation. We have passed the first 2.5% of innovators and the 13.5% of early adopters, I believe we are now penetrating into the first half of the 34% that is referred to as the early majority. This means that we have only seen about 50% of the total market. In business terms, this is really exciting, and you should be thrilled with the wide open landscape that still exists in front of us. I will discuss some examples a little bit later as to how many colleagues I have were able to permeate new spaces, but the common theme among them all is that they took a chance, asked hard questions, were persistent, and mostly self-taught. Majority of what we have discussed in this season is about how to push beyond what we currently know and practice in a way that grows us individually and has a larger impact on the profession, regardless of which setting you are in you can accomplish this for yourself. Let's look at some factors that could make someone successful in a non-traditional setting. In our first season, we spoke to Kelly Hudson, who is an athletic trainer in the performing arts and entertainment industry. Her and I worked together on The Biggest Loser, but her expertise is truly in developing AT programs for performing arts programs. She did this with the Irish touring dance troupe, Burn the Floor, and also helped build the presence of athletic trainers at Disneyland. 
and now she works at Universal Studios. She spoke about increasing value by demonstrating the decrease in cost to the client through use of workers' comp. This is an insurance an employer has to pay and is subject to go up with increased frequency of use, just like any other insurance policy. Well, at Universal Studios, the sets carry workers' comp on their stunt men and women, but when these people get injured, which is fairly frequently, not only are they out of a job, but the employer is then paying increased premiums. Kelly came in and demonstrated her value by implementing preventative measures and working on site to keep some of the stunt men and women working while they rehabbed their injuries. In one year's time, Universal had seen such a decrease in their workers' comp costs that it more than paid for Kelly's services. This is an example of forging your own path and using business acumen to prove your value. While we all know that we've got a versatile skill set that can be applied to various populations, you have to approach situations around money and business decisions from their perspective. Being a really good AT is only so useful unless you can translate your work into numbers for the person having to write the check. Understanding what is valuable to them, in this case, workers' comp premiums, is a great way to solidify yourself and our profession into an emerging area. I also believe this is the premise behind the occupational industrial setting, where they work heavily on preventing injuries and keeping them in-house once someone has been injured. I'm not as familiar or well-versed in this setting, but I know that the presence of athletic trainers has seen a boom because of how much money the employers are saving by keeping people working. A large manufacturer could seed savings in the millions of dollars. So this is big business. And this is just one example of a newly identified population we have learned can benefit from the services of an athletic trainer. In my experience, the hours an AT works in the industrial setting are more regular and the compensation tends to be on the higher end because of the payment model. As I said previously, this is a market where veteran ATs could transition to deeper into their career that could provide stability they may be looking for. If we hadn't found the possibilities within this market, we may have otherwise lost those people from our profession. We covered a few more really cool people like Kelly in our first season. If you go back and listen to them, they're titled Case Studies and should be available on your podcast app or in SoundCloud. Also in our first season, we discussed how to build a business plan. This was actually a four-part series, which may sound super boring, but I promise it wasn't. We covered essential topics, starting with the whole point or purpose of a business plan, all the way up to the components needed to actually build one. This is useful knowledge and great points to consider if you are thinking about going into a field that has never seen an athletic trainer before, or if you're building a new type of business model around athletic training. For example, I've seen concierge or cash pay services popping up here and there. If you're on track for something like that, then understanding what others will be looking for in a business model is advantageous. I don't have an MBA, and I know that most of you don't either, but that shouldn't stop you from pursuing non-traditional models of athletic training. Many people have been successful in developing new areas without any formal training. If you're interested in checking those out, they were episodes 16 through 19 of our last season. Each one covers a different aspect and they build upon each other. So if you're looking for an in-depth approach, listen to all four. Along these same lines, I'm hearing from many ATs who are starting to see the value in going into business for themselves. 
I have gotten calls from ATs all over the country in various settings looking for information on how to build autonomous opportunities for themselves while soliciting their services to varied clients. I believe that podcasts like this and the increase in knowledge around this topic will continue to show an uptick in these kinds of services. I encourage you to explore these areas if you have interest in them because you never know what will happen when you walk through a door that is cracked open. Many of the spaces athletic trainers currently operate in are the result of just one person pushing a door open and paving the way for others. If you feel inspired to be one of those people, then take the first step. And then of course, there are all the topics we've discussed this season on the business advantage that apply to both traditional and non-traditional settings. Let's take a look back at them to see how they can be applied in the non-traditional setting. Developing a personal brand and knowing how to market yourself in an emerging area will be crucial to your ability to develop any kind of clientele or network. During the recent NATA presidential election, Tori Lindley, one of the candidates, shared a post on Twitter about AT recognition and brand identity advancement. The four primary tenets of it were enhance our physician connections, leverage pro sports relationships to increase brand identity, tell our story louder, and identify professional values. I thought this was great because the leadership of our profession is seeing the value in utilizing voices that already have power and recognition, like pro sports, but also encouraging each member to tell their stories and identify professional values. This is applicable for all settings and will only help us to be recognized and valued across the spectrum. Negotiation. I want to share a posting I saw on social media recently by Mike Hopper, who is an athletic trainer at a high school in Texas and hosts the AT Talks on Twitter. He said, value. We often talk about value in athletic training, but do we do the work to show what our services are worth? One of my goals for this school year is to demonstrate this value. Fortunately, I'm at a school who values the athletic trainers and what we do, but now we must quantify our worth and demonstrate it. We are doing this in two ways. One, documentation and billing of our services. Two, tracking our hours worked. One, documentation and quote billing of our services. This is a hot topic in athletic training right now as it relates to the ability to gain third-party reimbursement. While it is expected that for that to become widespread is still a while off, and while many would disagree about its ability at the secondary school setting, that doesn't mean we can't use the data. Through the first month of our tracking, our services are valued at just over $24,000. We averaged about 165 patient visits per week. Our amount of care and our number of visits continues to climb each week. It'll be interesting to watch how this continues to play out over the next several months. Two, tracking our hours. Athletic trainers are accustomed to working a significant amount of hours each week, but how many hours are we actually working? I was pretty surprised by this when I began tracking mine this year. My assistant and I were each right around 300 hours for the month of August. That breaks down to almost 60 per week per person. Had you asked me previously, I would have told you I was working 75 to 80. Regardless, it's a significant amount of hours and we'll continue to track this data over the next several months. So athletic trainers, 
How are you showing your value? How do you quantify that for your supervisors and your school administrators? When we talked about negotiation, these are the kinds of things we need to have data on in order to prove our worth. Like I mentioned a little bit earlier with Kelly Hudson at Universal, they saw a steep decline in their workers' comp costs, which is directly related to the services she was providing. Having hard data gives great leverage when you need to negotiate and hopes are they will recognize your value and you won't have to negotiate at all. It is not the sole responsibility of NATA or anyone else to fix the wages for athletic trainers. Take matters into your own hands, like Mike shared, as this is a great way of using skills to prove your value in a traditional setting, but also make a place for yourself in a non-traditional one. Mike, if you're listening, let us know how things are going since you first wrote this post back in August. In episode five, we discussed picking up contract work and knowing the difference in employment models. I want to share with you something that I was pleasantly surprised by. When you go to NATA in the career and education section, and then under post a job, click on the 25th percentile guidelines. There is a list of numerous job settings and then the 25th and 75th percentile dollar amounts associated with those job settings. This guideline is here for potential employers to use engaging their salaries, but is also supposed to be a minimum that is allowed for employers to post in the career center. Among the many jobs listed, which vary from Division I collegiate to pro sports, hospital settings, teaching, etc., I was pleasantly surprised to see that independent contractor had one of the highest salaries. I want you to think of a number in your head that you think someone who works solely for themselves would be making in a salary, especially considering all other settings in athletic training. Okay, now are you ready to hear the range? The 25th percentile, so the lower one quarter of independent contractors make 52,000 a year. And the 75th percentile, so the upper one quarter, make 80,000 a year. Does that make you think twice about working for yourself? By comparison, Division I professional staff in athletics have a range from 37 to 59K. And the secondary public high school setting has a range from 42 to 66K. Working for yourself provides a great number of benefits outside of just a potentially higher wage. If you're unfamiliar with all of the write-offs and tax advantages of being self-employed, you should go back and listen to episode 5 from this season and episode 12 from last season on taxes. Not to mention, oftentimes being self-employed is one of the only ways to penetrate new markets. It takes a lot for an entity to bring someone on as an employee, oftentimes requiring thorough job descriptions, adjustments to their insurance or overall budget, and potentially negotiations with labor unions. By making yourself available as an independent contractor, you allow yourself an opportunity to prove your worth and convince them that those hoops are potentially worth jumping through. I would venture to say that the majority of emerging settings started by someone working as an independent contractor. And for those of you in traditional settings, independent contract work is a great way to supplement your income or get exposure to new areas while maintaining your primary gig. And then of course there is mitigating your risk and liability, which is pretty much essential regardless of which setting you work in. Matter of fact, if you want to keep working, this is going to be of paramount importance to you. 
There has been a new resource provided by the NATA, the Sports Medicine Legal Digest, which I think is going to be incredibly valuable as they develop more issues of it. Currently, there are two, which already have great content and perspectives that many athletic trainers are potentially overlooking. I can't overstate it. Knowing your legal and liability parameters could be the difference in your future. I stated very clearly in episode nine that claiming ignorance is not going to save you in court. If you're not keeping yourself familiar with state practice acts, NATA position statements, and best practices, you leave yourself susceptible to legal trouble. In the emerging settings, I think this is even more vital. Many of the populations you work with, such as military or rodeo or industrial workers, have very different insurance arrangements or stipulations, such as OSHA, that they are held to. If you do nothing else before moving into another setting, research the legal aspect of your work. I found myself incredibly passionate about this topic, and I hope to be able to bring you more content regarding it. But in the meantime, another resource has become available from a leading insurance provider, HPSO. They developed a risk management strategies for the athletic trainer based on claim scenarios they had been a part of. They also have information about social media, blood flow restriction training, and they even address independent contractor status. I would encourage all of you to take some time to read through it. Like I mentioned earlier, during our first season, we spoke to several individuals that were doing some really cool things. They are all titled case studies, if you wanna go back and listen to them, in our episodes five, 10, and 15 from season one. I've already told you about Kelly Hudson, but let me tell you about Robert Kirkland. He is an athletic trainer who carved a niche for himself in the parkour setting, which is also known as free running or Tempest. There is an emerging population of these athletes in Southern California where Robert lives. And by being one of those athletes himself, he discovered an untapped need within the community. He started by helping out some buddies who then told the gym they work out at that he does a really great job. This led to a few unpaid opportunities where Robert demonstrated his value very quickly, which got him in the door to discuss and negotiate paid opportunities. As a result, Robert is a full-time freelancer who treats and travels these athletes domestically and internationally. He has been to Santorini, Greece several times for the Red Bull Art of Motion, which he describes as the Super Bowl of free running. Robert accomplished all of this because he took a chance on himself and wasn't willing to give up on his passion. He found a niche that served his professional and personal interests well, and he made something of it. He is one of a very few athletic trainers who work in this setting, and I know he is creating opportunity and opening doors for many more to follow in his footsteps. Even though this started out as a selfish pursuit of his own, he is introducing our profession to athletes that have never seen us before and creating possibilities for years to come. I have a similar backstory to Robert in that I started this company out of selfish intents because I needed work, but have grown it into a place of incredible selflessness. Where this company started was a place for me to get per diem work because I was a new grad who needed opportunities and full-time jobs just weren't available during the recession. 
As more and more work came my way, I started to share it with friends who I knew were in a similar position as I was. And over the years, it has grown to where we are providing abundant opportunities in places that may have never otherwise seen an athletic trainer. We have successfully created nine full-time athletic training positions in California. We staff over a thousand youth rugby events per year in California and are expanding all the time. Advantage is an example of how to practice a non-traditional way while working in a traditional setting. While the bulk of our business happens in the secondary school setting, the way we place ATs and the type of contracts we hold with our clients are very non-traditional. First of all, we are owned and operated by an athletic trainer, myself. Whereas outreach services are usually housed under PT clinics or hospitals. Secondly, we are committed to the advancement of these positions and the profession. So we work alongside our district clients yearly to develop the presence of the athletic trainer on campus. The NATA tells us that full-time district AT positions are the gold standard. But I challenge that idea, as I have seen a great deal of stagnancy when that is the case. I like to believe that what we are doing for the profession is getting athletic trainers into schools that have never had them before, and working to transition them has had a great influence on the growth of where athletic trainers have been able to get into. There isn't just me and Robert who are thinking outside of the box. Earlier this summer, I spoke at the Innovation in AT Summit, where athletic trainers who think differently gathered in order to discuss how to push the profession beyond its current means into areas various individuals are passionate about. Some of these were cash pay services, some of them were business owners, and various other representatives who are challenging the status quo. There are larger conversations going on in the profession, some of what we see coming from the presidential candidates, but also just the buzz you hear going around when at conferences. I've said it before and I will say it again. It's an exciting time to be an athletic trainer. Whether you know it or not, simply by listening to this podcast, you are part of the larger conversation that is being had. Even if you aren't an active participant in it, your passive listening and gathering of information means a lot to those of us who are actively pursuing it. While there can be a great deal of pushback from traditional settings to those who pursue non-traditional models, it's important to remember that we are all ATs. Whether it personally affects you or not, it's valuable to support in the ways that you know how. For example, by getting an NPI, even if you never plan to bill for reimbursement. To bring this entire season full circle, I want to emphasize the value of business acumen by sharing an excerpt from an invitation to participate in a study I received. Jessica Edler, doctoral candidate at Indiana State, had a dissertation on, quote, identify how continuing education follow-up affects knowledge and skill retention and the reasons for or against the implementation of knowledge and skills into your clinical practice following a continuing education session. When I read this, it made me think, whose responsibility is it to provide this education? With the switch to entry-level masters, there's going to be a greater emphasis on post-professional residencies and deeper learning done on an individual basis. You all have already pursued this further education, whether it was just for some free CEUs or you actually had an interest in these topics, you're already a better professional for it. Our profession will continue to grow, 
And as we continue to see changes over the next years and decades, the question is, how will we as individuals adapt? Will we grow with it? Will we be able to solve wage and retention issues? I believe the answer to these questions is within all of us, and it is our duty to discover the solutions. I know we're made up of some incredible people, and with trust and support from each other, we can achieve great things. Thank you for listening. You are now eligible to earn your free CEU by logging on to theadvantage.com CEU and taking the quiz. If you enjoyed listening or know a colleague looking for free CEUs, please share our link and don't forget to like us on social media at The Advantage. We have also started a Facebook group, The Business Advantage, to allow greater discussion about these topics. Thanks for tuning in to all of season two of this podcast. We truly hope you have learned and grown as a professional by tuning in to these 10 episodes and certainly getting some free CEUs doesn't hurt either. We hope to bring you new content in 2018, so be sure to follow our medias to stay updated on that. Thank you again for listening and thank you to Mr. Logistics for the music you've heard throughout.